Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, what's up, ladies and gentlemen? It's Scott Groves on the uh, On The Edge Podcast. Yeah, I can't even get it out of my mouth. It's been a while since we filmed. We're actually back in our LA studio with a repeat guest, which I think this is only our second or third guest we've had on for a second time, right, Chris? This is like a, this is like a big deal for Mr. Fred Joyle. Um, Fred wrote this book here, which uh, we're going to talk about a lot, Super Bold, From Underconfident to Charismatic in 90 Days. He just finished his first workshop on the, on the topic, but Fred comes from kind of the same world I do, just much more successful at it. Uh, coaching, uh, I coach a lot of salespeople. He coaches at like the CEO level. Uh, ran or founded or started or something, 1-800-DENTIST, which was like a billion-dollar company, which is amazing. I want to get into that. That. Uh, and then kind of just really leaning into this, how to find your confidence and how to be bold. So what did I miss in the 60 second reader's digest version of your, of your couple of years on this life? Well, that you actually, I, I co-founded 1-800-DENTIST. Then I was the CEO for 25 years until we eventually sold it. Uh, we brought in private equity and then eventually, uh, I, I phased myself out over the next three Private years. Private equity always wants their money back. It's the weirdest thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a, <laughs> and they're full of bad ideas. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm interested in that. Like, what does that evolution look like? You found a company, you want to grow, you need extra capital, Can without divulging anything that was signed on the NDA. Can you tell us kind of how that private venture capital structure works? Can you give me, like, just kind of a, a history lesson or an education on that? Uh, there's, there's all different ones out there, but the, the problem is most businesses, your purpose is to satisfy something in the customer, to bring like greater value to the marketplace. Private equity's raison d'etre is make money. And that's, that's what they live and die for. That's what gets them out of bed. And so that's that they bring that focus into the business. And when they come in, they, they are there to quadruple their money. Uh, and they write all sorts of really clever things into the, con the, the contract itself, uh, the liquidation preference. If you're not familiar with that concept, that is, that is a tremendous vice on your balls. Uh, it is basically said, we are getting all our money back before the split after the sale. So, and, and some liquidation preferences are 3x, not just uh, they could be I'm getting my money back or I'm getting 2x my money back or 3x my money back. Now, if they've bought in, let's say they bought in for 60% of the company and, and you sell it for $20 million or, or, or let's say you sell it for uh, $100 million just to make the numbers Perfect. easier. Okay. But they put in 30 they're, and they've got a liquidation preference of 3x. They're taking 90 of the 100 million, and you're getting 40% of the 10. Oh, that can be brutal. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, so I work in the mortgage space, and the mortgage space just had a couple of their best years ever, 2000, uh, 2020 and 2021, now we're seeing 2022 come back to earth, interest rates rise, not as much easy money falling from the sky. And it's funny because like the company that I work for is still privately owned. They seem well capitalized. They're not really nickel and diming us. Meanwhile, and it would probably be inappropriate me, for me to, to, to mention them by name, there's a few mortgage companies that have gone public at let's say like an IPO price of $20 a share during the boom cycle. And now they're trading around three or $4 a share because the market's down, they're not well capitalized. Um, production is down. 
in that IPO, do you think the venture capital people got all their money back? Or do you think six months later, if their stock went from $20 to $4, they just got screwed and they mistimed the market in the mortgage space? The PE guys are almost always out in the IPO. That's what they're waiting for. Because they have a, usually they have a cycle. They, they have an investment cycle, unless they're an evergreen fund, which is rare, of five years. So by three and a half years, they're looking for a buyer or an IPO so that they can cash out. And, they're, and they just take their money off the table. Now, they may leave some in. They may leave a tail on it. Right. But they've got to return their money to their limited partners in the fund if it's a five-year fund. Because PE firms, they've got a certain amount of their own money in, but it's a fraction of what the fund is. When they say we're raising another fund, that means they're going out to their limited partners and raising another pile of money that they have to create a return on. They're going to manage the money, and they're going to take a percentage of the gain of all of that money, the, the, the PE firm. That's where this whole expression, two and 10, we're going to take two and 10. So they got 2% a year management fee on the fund. So if it's a billion dollar fund, they're taking 2% of that as a management fee. Wow. And then they're and, getting 10% on the exit. Anything that happens on the exit, they take 10% of that. Interesting. So, so it's a great business because it's, if you it's the classic other people's money. Right. But you, you meanwhile, succeed. you're getting 2%. Oh, so that the the fund is okay because they're getting two percent even while the money's invested and right. they're trying to grow something and have a five year exit. Yeah, no, every year they're taking their two percent of that fund. Interesting. So I, again, I can't say too much without feeling like I'm um, violating somebody's privacy. But let's just say, for example, somebody had grown a mom and pop auto body shop to five locations and blue collar worker, just very great human being, but like not some big business acumen. He started getting phone calls from these hedge fund people, and he just thought they were like crank calls. Hey, we'll give you money for your business, whatever. Finally, one day, a couple guys show up in suits, and they're like, hey, we've been trying to get in touch with you. You own you know, five auto body shops in this designated ge geographical area where we want some penetration. We'll pay you X amount of dollars. Hand over all five businesses right now. And the dollar figure was like probably three or four times what he ever thought he could sell the businesses yeah. for so of course took the money and run but in the conversations he's like hey guys i don't understand like my cash flow is x my like why are you paying me so much and they're like well here's the deal we represent this venture capital fund that's trying to acquire a thousand privately held uh, auto body shops across the nation we'll rebrand them we have economies of scale one ceo one controller whatnot and you know we've plugged in the numbers and all these buzzwords that who knows what they really mean vertical integration and blah 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 and we'll exit in five years for like a 300 percent return and he's like this just doesn't make sense to me right he's like a, a, a door panel is a door panel like how are you going to 3x the business so what are because these are obviously some intelligent people from new york that have billions of dollars in their fund what are they thinking like what do they know that he doesn't know or what do they have access to that he doesn't have access to they know that there are economies of scale that can be executed so so they're planning on doing that and and what they do is they they cut all of the expenses that they possibly can and try to turn it into some sort of a cash cow. And then that, but, and, and, but when they aggregate, what happens is they have built a business that is a, a huge value. And, and now the next buyer is an even bigger fund could be a pension plan fund. Uh, like the Canadian teachers pension plan is one of the biggest funds in the world. Hmm. They're looking for stuff that, that, 
barfs cash every year, 10%, 12% a year. So, and they've got to deploy hundreds of thousands of dollars, billions. They're not afraid to make a billion dollar purchase. And what there's a few people at that level that can afford to buy these companies. And there's very little for them to buy. And they compete with each other to buy something that's worth a half a billion dollars or a billion dollars. Interesting. So the the PE firm that is the, the mid-market level that, that is pushing up to create something that's worth a billion dollars knows that these guys are hungry and that they're going to compete for this acquisition. And then they're going to hold it because they, they want the earnings from it. They're not going to, uh, you know, one of, one of the firms that I, we worked with, uh, Bain Capital, they own Dunkin' Donuts. Oh yeah, they're never selling Dunkin' Donuts, right? Because it's just their 10 or just 12% like where, a year. it's like you want more cash, you want to open more stores, you want to squeeze Starbucks out of the mall, we'll, out of the airport. We'll do that. We'll help you do that. Interesting. So uh, it gets to the point where they the the final owner says, "I'm looking for a, a you know 10 percent return. I'm not looking." Whereas the guy at the bottom, the venture capital guy, he's looking for 10, 20x what he put in. Right. Because they're the doing PI, all the PE guys are looking for five x or five to ten x. Because they're doing all the like the first guy, my friend, who sold the five auto body shops. He's doing the sweat equity of building yeah. it. Then the PE guy is doing like the I would call it the the mental masturbation of growing a real business, right? Like yeah, you know, and they're I bringing mean, in what they call executive management, mm-hmm. and they, and they they've got somebody that knows you know how to scale. Your friend had a pretty good idea how to scale to five, right? Getting to 50 is a whole different game. Same thing right. in the dental industry. This, this is all happening, and the people are rolling up dental practices by the hundreds. Um, and they're, they're achieving these economies of, of, of scale. And because the average dentist doesn't know how to generate 10 practices and run them all efficiently, but you can run 100 practices. There are, there are companies that own 1,000 dental practices. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was at the uh, Jocko Willink's uh, leadership summit about three months ago, and uh, I have a friend who, ironically, we're in a um, a preppers uh, Telegram thread with. So we like exchange ideas on like, what kind of ammo do you like? Uh, what are you doing for for water storage and things like this? Because we're all crazy and we think the world's going to end one day. It's fine. The people can laugh at me in the audience. But uh, I I met him for the first time live there, and I'm like, oh, what are you doing? He's like, oh yeah, we, very humble guy. We own uh, 300 orthodontist practices. I was like, you own what? And he's like, he's like, yeah, I got out of dental school uh, about six months in. I realized I really didn't like being a dentist, um, but I love the business of dentistry. Yeah, yeah. So same thing, economies of scale. And he's like, we've taken on a little bit of venture capital money, but I think we'll probably get to 200 clinics and like sell off to the next guy that wants to manage 10,000 clinics or something. And it's just, it's a very interesting way to make money where, I mean, because clearly the dentist is still getting paid or they wouldn't have sold to him in the first place, right? right. Like they're making money. But um, it's interesting because in my mind, I have all those 80s movies like Wall Street, Pretty Woman, you know, where the villain kind of buys a company, cuts it apart, sells it for its pieces and makes a profit. But it seems like the new model of venture capital or big boy money is like you consolidate and you consolidate and you consolidate and you grow bigger until you get that. And those things tip over as well. Uh, they, it looks like it can scale to a certain point, And then they suddenly realize it doesn't, there's too many levels of management, which is always inefficient. And, and, and when you get 30, 40,000 employees, 
there's all of these layers of fat that that happen and somebody has to come in and and constantly be trimming it off which doesn't feel good it doesn't it's it's not exciting like building a business from the right. start that's why very seldom does uh, the founder ceo thrive as you get to that next level where you're 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 going through you've gone through the go-go years and and all of the fun and growing at 100 percent a year and things like that and now you're you're trying to grind out 10 or 15 percent and it's you're laying people off at certain times and you're you're having to borrow money and you've got people that are telling you what to do all of a sudden when you as soon as the big mistake i made was to sell majority interest in the company and not all of it right because i believe now they tell you what to do anyway right right and so and 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 they steered it straight into a wall um and and they turned my value to virtually nothing mm. And, and, but I believed that I should have, I left my money on the table because I didn't want to sell. My partner wanted to sell. I had a couple of partners and we wanted to buy a small company. So I needed the cash to get my partners out who wanted to get out at a price I wouldn't have sold for. Now I would have. Right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> Hindsight, right? Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I could no longer drive the bus. I was in the caboose watching the train wreck. Yeah. And it's, and it was so easy. I knew what to do to solve it, but there was nothing I could do. They would have fired me. They'd have kicked me off the board and fired me if I did these. Cause you're, you're no longer the controlling, the controlling, uh, no, asset but there. I had to stay. Also I had to stay cause I was the, the face of the business to right. the industry. So they said, We're, you, you will have no power, but we want you to stay for at least three years. Oh yeah. So, uh, classic earnout, right? Like lame duck. Yeah. Yeah. Rate. And it was, it was just painful to stay there and watch them destroy the asset. Oh, um, brutal. But Hey, sometimes it goes the worst it could possibly go. Yeah. You know, you bring up an interesting point of, uh, you know, this is a little different than the founder's dilemma, but you've grown to such a point where, well, we got bill, the regional manager to the market leader, to the divisional roll up in the Southeast. And I, I hired him back when we were real small and he really helped us out. And people know in their heart of hearts they should fire them, but they just can't bring themselves to do it. And there's this, I'd love to get your feedback on this. There's this huge debate in the mortgage world of, do I work for an independent um, mortgage bank or do I go be an independent broker? And the difference is if I go just be a broker and I put my shingle on the wall and it's Scott Grove's mortgage, it's like, well, now I've got the compliance headache and I've got the overhead and I got to pay the benefits for my employees. But there's no levels of managers, you know, taxing my pricing or driving up my rates because I just sell directly to the wholesaler who buys the loan and, and that's it. So there's some pros and cons there versus like where I work at a traditional kind of mortgage bank, you know. Uh, I've got a uh, market leader and then I've got a divisional leader and then I've got a regional manager and all those people are taking two or three bips or five bips or 2% off of the cut. And then eventually if you're the private broker and I'm the mortgage banker, you know, it's not that significant, but maybe my rates are an eighth higher, a quarter higher. So what I've got to constantly be doing in my mind and I, and I coach my loan officers to do this is like anybody who's in your chain of command, who's, who's basically a tax on your system needs to be adding value and yeah. coaching you, leading you, Casting a Because they're going to get vision. bonused on your success, whether right. they added value or not. Right, right. So it's like if I'm a $100 million producer and somebody's not helping me become a $120 million producer, they're just a tax on the system. So what's your, what's your coaching advice since you've coached all the way to the highest levels of companies at CEOs? 
What's your coaching advice for those middle managers to be like, hey, you've got this sweetheart job, but you've got to keep adding value to your people. Like, what are they to do, I guess, is the, is the question, those middle managers. Uh, get better, uh, which means generally they need coaching almost more than the CEO does because they're, they're, they're in certain behavior modes and, and you don't manage your way to great success. That's, that's not how business works. You, you, you innovate, you create, you revolutionize, you lead. You know, the difference between a leader and a manager is significant. If a manager can learn how to lead and basically create better leaders under herself, that's when she is the most effective person in that managerial role. She doesn't see herself as a manager. She sees herself as somebody growing people. Got it. Growing so, leaders give, in their own me, way. Give me an example of that because I love that. You, need, you can't manage your way to success. You have to manage versus – or you have, you have to lead versus manage or what's the difference? Um, you've, you've coached salespeople. You've managed salespeople. What's the difference between managing salespeople and leading salespeople? Like give us a real like tactical example or something. If, if you see them, what, what you have to do, a, a real leader finds a way to make people better. It sees something in them that they don't see in themselves. And doesn't just tell them to do it. It pulls them up, elevates them, challenges them, and says, you can be better, and this is how you can be better. And you get really good at giving powerful, candid feedback. These are your strengths. These are your weaknesses. We're, how do we overcome these weaknesses? Because this is what's preventing your success more than your strengths, your weaknesses. So we either, we either have to find a way to delegate somebody to cover your weaknesses or you have to overcome these things. Like people, and what, what are the limiting beliefs that you're carrying with you? Because they'll say, oh, I really don't like to look at the numbers. Well, that's too bad because at, at your level, you need to look at the numbers. If, you, if you're not good at it, it means you have to work harder at understanding the numbers because you don't get to do just what you love. Right. You got to do what you love and what, what's important for you to succeed at, which means you've got to understand what these numbers mean. And you've got you've to have a rhythm for looking at them on a regular basis. If you don't, we're not just, you're not going to stay at this position. It's really important to help people to understand. It's like, we're not looking for a place for you to comfortably retire while you're still working. If you're not getting better, you're getting worse. You have to, you have to be moving up or you're moving out. I love it. And, and, and you have to say that, you know, because every, the only way a business gets stronger is if everybody is trying to get better. And the soon as a person says, this is as far as I want to get, I'm, I'm coasting at this point. Cause I, I, this is, I can, I can get this done. I get everybody doing, I get all, everything humming underneath me and they're not putting the energy into growing people and they're not straining themselves. And you, and you'll, and you'll be able to find them and you can say, this is a, a glorified sinecure for you. This is like you, you're this, you've made a comfortable office where you've delegated everything and, and, and uh, you know, you're surfing Facebook all day. Uh, 
where in, instead of saying who, who, who do I need to focus on to make better or who do I need to repurpose, retrain or replace? So I, I'm thinking of the classic salesperson who maybe gets in my business, let's say $20 million in loan production, let's say $25 million in loan production. At most companies in America, $25 million in loan production will get you $250,000 a year, which is a really nice living in most places. A company will pay for an assistant because they're making enough money off of you. You'll qualify for the president's clubs trips and get to go to Cancun once a year for free and show off to your wife that you're a top producer. But I know there's a lot of $25 million producers that could be 50 or $100 million producers. And that $25 million producer, if they lose one or two of their key referral relationships because they're in coaster mode, um, coasting mode, you know, they might all of a sudden be a $10 million producer and that's a big hit to their income. So if you're a leader and you're talking to that $25 million producer and they're like, no, nah, I'm good, man. Like I, I'm just coasting. I've got my referral, uh, uh, partners in place and I've got my, I've got my assistant that the company pays for. I'm really financially in a good spot. I get to go to president's club. Like, you know, Fred, fuck you and your, and your desire to make me a $50 million producer because you're just trying to make more money for yourself. Like how does a leader push back and, and help those salespeople that have become complacent? Cause it can happen at 25 million, a hundred million. Yeah. Happen, oh yeah. The, you know, the, it doesn't the, matter. And some people are, are going to hit their ceiling. Uh, but it, it's, it, you try to help them understand that there's no such thing as security. Things fall apart. Yeah. If, if you're not, growing you're rotting basically uh, you know and that that will catch up to you and the problem is you're not feeling it because it's happening too subtly but what's happening is you've become your boldness muscles to grow yourself have become flaccid because you've gotten comfortable and a lot of people they chase comfort as as an end goal whereas where it's that's actually the danger zone because that's when stuff blindsides you that's and when stuff goes bad you're not ready anymore uh it, you know it, it's just like a certain amount of preparedness in your life what's what's your you know where's your go bag you know where's what's what's your cash reserve money do you do you have six months of money to live on if everything falls apart right if if you're that that's that's real security, but it's not permanent. There's right. nothing permanent, and you just have to say, if do you not? Let's look at the history of the mortgage industry. Is it the same as it was 15 years ago? It's not the same as it was 15 weeks ago. Right. So why do you think it's going to be the same five years from now when you're five years older and and your and all of your growth muscles are have become atrophied? And your risk-taking muscles and your ability to push yourself. That I'm trying to keep you from from being put out to pasture. I love that because we've seen a lot. We, you know, it's funny we see this in the real estate business all the time, and I've been servicing the same kind of geographical area for about 22 years now. Yeah, and you you see this, and we're going to go to the book in a minute. I promise. I just I love getting, <laughs> I love getting this free coaching from you. So you'll see a realtor hit the ground running like a motherfucker. I mean, they're just like hard charging. They talk to everybody. They work their sphere of influence and they start, you know, I'll just use round numbers here in LA. They start in 2011, like I'll take any $300,000, $400,000 buyer, which is a lower price point in LA. And they're just hungry and they're killing it. And then those buyers 
buy a house. The market appreciates dramatically in California from 2010, 11 to 2015. Now they've got these buyers who are like, oh, now we're sellers and we're buyers. So now they're a top producer. They're like, I've got, I've got sellers. I've got listings. I can guaranteed income. Now I'm moving these people up to million dollar price points. They're just crushing it. And two years later, their broker out of the industry because they they weren't flexing that bold muscle or they got a little complacent with their existing book of business and they weren't farming. They weren't door knocking. They weren't talking to their friends. They weren't willing to go show the $400,000 condo out in Encino because they had the million dollar listing in Los Feliz. And then like they, I swear realtors have like this seven year life cycle yeah. unless they get really hungry and go back to basics. So if you were coaching those people and you're like, man, you gotta, you gotta stay bold and you gotta have this constant in your mind. If you're not growing, you're rotting. I love that. I'm going to talk about that tomorrow on our coaching call. Um, how do, how do you get people either the concepts in your book or the concepts you've developed as a coach? How do you get people to actually do that? Cause it's easier said than done, right? It's, it's real easy to get because complacent. they're chasing comfort. They're chasing like, I, I don't want to do the shitty parts of this job anymore. But that's what got them there. Right. And right. that your ability to do that. You know, if if you're getting older and you want to keep playing basketball, you need to stretch right. <laughs> way more than you did at twenty. Yeah. Or you're or you're snapping something. Right. Uh and so it's like you have to evolve how you stay strong in this industry because you will uh, you know, and Jocko will say this a million times, you will, you will not rise to the level of your expectations, you will fall to the level of your training. And if you let those training skills, those basic fundamentals that made you successful, if you let those atrophy, you're going to get your ass kicked. And you, it'll be too late. You'll, you'll, you'll be drowning when you realize you need to start swimming. And you won't be able to swim at the speed you need to to get to shore anymore. So why not prepare for the worst in case it never happens? I love it. And why not, why not be strong? Just That's the real security. It's like I can't be stopped because I'm willing to do the fundamentals forever. You know, a good friend of mine had, had the opportunity to work out with Kobe Bryant. And he talks about it and he said, you know, Kobe said, you want to work out with me? And he said, yeah. He says, I'll, I'll, I would love to. He says, well, I'll be here at 4.30 in the morning. So he said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up early. you know." And so he shows up at 4, the, whole, the gym lights are on, and he can hear the ball snapping. Kobe's already been there doing uh, his warm-up before my friend was supposed to show up at 4.30. He was, he was working. He was there at quarter four. Man. And and he's doing all of these basic drills, these fundamental drills that you would be doing like your first year in college, um, if, uh, on the basketball team. And and my friend just said, you know, what you're the greatest player in the in the in the world right now. What are you doing these like these exercises for? And he just said, Why do you think I'm the greatest player in the world? Yeah, because I love doing the basics. I love working the fundamentals. It doesn't bother me to do this. He, and he also, just as another example, he, he worked with uh, Stephen Curry when he was younger, when he was really just coming up. And he hadn't, hadn't, I don't think he had been picked up by the NBA yet. He was still in college. 
and he asked my friend to, to spot him after practice. He says, I want to practice my free throws. He would do, he had to do 10 swishes in a row, free throws. And he wouldn't stop until he swished 10 in a row. And he'd just stand there. And he'd get nine and then hit the rim on the 10th one, start over. And within 20 minutes, he had swished 10. Dude, if Shaq would have had that work ethic, Kobe and Shaq would have won 15 titles It would have been ridiculous, the the trouncing they would have done to the other players if Shaq could. Because eventually, you know, we got to foul Shaq. Yeah. Because he's going to die on the free throw line. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I I, I might have told you this story, actually, because I know we talked about basketball the last time you were on. Uh, I ordered an Uber one time in Eagle Rock. And this guy gets in, this this Escalade pulls up. And I had ordered, like, the cheapest Uber. This Escalade pulls up, and there's a dude who's about seven feet driving the Uber. So I'm like, oh, well, now I know why he needs to drive an Escalade as an Uber if he's seven foot. And so I get in the car, and we had a pretty long drive. And I'm like, all right, dude, like, what's the story? Like, I don't mean to sound like a jerk, but you're driving, like, the lowest level of Uber in an Escalade. You're about seven foot. Everything I've read is that if you're seven foot, you have a one in three chance of being in the NBA. He's like, yeah. He's like, I played for Arkansas. Um, I didn't quite make the NBA, so I went and played in the Euro League for a couple of years, and now I'm back here, and I'm trying to build my brand to do sports camps and coaching, and you know, become an agent eventually. And it takes a long time, and it takes a lot of money. So I, you know, I work 40 hours a week on basketball in the camps. I work 20 hours a week watching film, and I work 20 hours a week, uh, you know, driving Uber so I can take care of my family. I'm like, man, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but what's the difference between? a division one rock star athlete who didn't quite make the NBA versus Lamar Odom who played in the NBA, but was never quite a superstar versus Kobe Bryant. And I was shocked with his answer. He said schedule. He's like, if I would have learned earlier in life to keep a schedule, spend more time stretching, recovering, doing the fundamentals, practicing at the right time. He's like, 100%, I would have made the NBA. But I was the asshole that would drink beer in college, you know, eat candy, show up half an hour before the game at the minimum regulated time to get in just enough stretching. And then I would dominate with my size and I would be good enough. But, you know, had I got to the gym at 5 p.m. or 4 p.m. or 3 p.m. after class was over and start warming up and going through the fundamentals, there's no doubt in my mind I would have been in the NBA and now I want to instill that in younger players. But for him to say the difference between him versus Lamar Odom versus Kobe Bryant was schedule was like very eye-opening to me. And it's playing along with everything that you're saying right now. Well, and so many of the people I know that are successful in business were not naturals. They, they, were, they were average IQ. They knew even in high school they had to work harder than the other kids. I know a lot of guys with higher IQ that, and, that, that could coast through high school and college, and it didn't help them. It impaired them. Whereas my, my friends who succeeded, like, I got to step up. I got to work harder. I got I to learn more. I got to learn faster. Because I'm, I'm not a natural. And that's, that's the same thing. as uh, you're the, natural, the, the athletes who are natural but also world-class combine the discipline. And they say, I still got to do the fundamentals. I can't coast on my natural ability. Yeah. And, it, and this coasting is the same thing that people are getting into. It's like, oh, I hit my level, and this is comfortable. And... I, I just tell people it's like this, you know, it's so dangerous. It's the, the illusion of safety. And it's, it's also, it's not a fulfilling life. 
Talk more about that. We we are meant. I mean, that's why I talk so much about boldness. Is it's because you, we, our dreams are, are not reached because they were too hard. They, they we not we don't reach them because we don't get to them. We think we got more time, and we'll oh I I I, I can work on this right now. I'm really comfortable, and it's the illusion that we have an infinite amount of time. And this is what happens in in your thirties. A lot of times is you've, you've hit that level where you're, where you're, oh, finally comfortable. And you don't realize that it gets harder in your 40s and your 50s and your 60s to, to summon the willpower and the expertise to, to keep thriving. But that's the only thing that's satisfying. Uh, comfort is not fulfilling in the long run. It's, it's just like saying uh, sleep is, uh, is, is my goal. <laughs> right it's like no sleep is to restore yourself so you can get up and kick ass all day so you could chase your dreams so you can find a fulfilling life what i talk so much in my book about your discomfort zone where that everything great is discovered in your discomfort zone you feel way better about yourself when you push your limits we are we are meant to stress ourselves muscles atrophy from lack of exercise they we only get stronger with stress and our brain only works its best with a certain amount of stress with a certain amount of challenge it's why when people retire they get they seem like they get stupid and they die and they die because there's nothing to live for there's nothing there's nothing fulfilling about being retired and not accomplishing everything that they could have or e even with their day, and they're thinking, I'm just going to golf. And they, I know guys that played, sold their business and said, "This, I'm just going to golf. This is all I want to do. They're two years into playing golf. They're ready to blow their brains out. It's like yeah. it's, there's nothing challenging about it except, you know, first of all, your score never gets better. It gets better by, like, one point. <laughs> it's like it's the only sport in history where the, the, the world record scores stay the same for 100 years. Because um, it's not really a sport; it's a hobby. But anyway, I, I, oh, you just pissed off like the I, three people that listen to our show. <laughs> <laughs> no, Let's but, face it: if you can play the sport with a pot belly and succeed, and yeah. sometimes be one of the champions, it's not a sport. It's yeah. like saying pool's a sport. It's <laughs> no; it's a it's a it's, game. It's a game. Right. All right. Um, but we digress. We digress. Right? But but. Uh, I, what I encourage people to do is to understand that when, when old people are in their last months or last days, their regrets are all the things that they didn't do, the things they didn't try, the things they didn't say, the things they didn't fix because they had in their minds plenty more time or that they would get to it or that they want to maintain the grudge or something like that or, or it felt too hard, too challenging. No, the people who, who die satisfied are the people who left it all on the mat. I tried everything. I failed at a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. I lost all over the place. I lost in love. I lost in business. But I also won. And I met, met great people. And I tried and I tried and I tried. You know, there's two things that I'm trying to balance in my mind, and I promise this is going to come full circle to everything that you just said. But there's this trope in movies or storytelling or people have experienced in their life of kind of like this 
this broken old man, right? Like death of a salesman, yeah. pretty much all the stories from uh, the Great Depression of like, it doesn't matter at different times in our society, it's been the 30-year-old man, the 40-year-old man, the 50-year-old man of like, well, he's just broken, you know, used to be a hard charger, you know, used to be, uh, I'm thinking of, uh, who, who is the character in Glengarry Glen Ross when he's like, put the coffee down, um, you know, coffee's for closer and the guy, Jackie Gleason or something. No, it was, uh, it was um, Jack Lemmon. Jack Lemmon, yeah. It's just like, well, you know, I used to be a guy and I used to be, and there's just this trope of this broken man. So I yeah. agree with, with everything you're saying, right. Of like, of like, yeah, you, you, you've got to go out there and, and do stuff. And I'm wondering one, how does that broken soul, that broken man develop? Um, that's, that's one thing that I'm trying to balance in my head. And then the other thing I'm trying to balance in my head is like, we all know that guy that took so many risks where I was like, ah, maybe you should have just been a little steady Eddie. Maybe you shouldn't have tried to start the fifth business that bankrupted and now maybe you're not broken, but you're just broke. And that's a shitty way to live in retirement too. Um, so I'm trying to balance those two thoughts of like, you know, I, I don't want to get to 60 and feel like a broken man. Like, like ah, I just didn't try the things that I wanted to try. But I also look at some people I know that, you know, have made very good financial decisions or are on their way to financial security at 40, 45. And I agree, they're probably just going to drink too much or play too much golf and want to blow their brains out. And then they're going to be 65 and they'll be 30 years from death, right. probably. They'll live to 95. And if, if they haven't found a way to make every day challenging and fulfilling in some way, and it could just be that it's like, how do I give back? At a certain age, what's your contribution? I mean, that's the evolution of, of, and of growth as a person is uh, you, you get you got to take care of yourself at first. You got to, and then you got to take care of your family. And then what's next? Having an impact on the world, having contribution. Maybe it's it, it, your contribution is only as a grandparent, but but more likely that's not enough because that, that parenting has is a cycle. It's eighteen years and the kid's gone. Right. And and well, in modern America, it's about thirty-two years. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what I, I, I went. I went historical on that. But yeah. But I mean, I, but at least fifty percent are still trying to figure out, and they and the rest of them move back during COVID. But that it's, the real satisfaction in life is what can I contribute? How can I have a little more impact on the world? And it, it doesn't have to be all day. That's the thing is, you know, if, if you say, look, I want to be a great grandparent. I still want to be a great father. I want to be a great mom. Uh, I, I want to be a great grandmother. But I also, I know that these people need this and I know how to do this. Or I want to figure out how to do this. I want to create a charity or work for a charity that does this. Some part of your day is about contribution. And then, the, then it's fun to play golf. Then it's fun to, to, you know, to watch TV at night because you, you went out there and took some of your energy to contribute. And that, that will nourish you enough. You won't have to do what you did at 30 or 40, to, raising a family and working a job and, and, and getting ahead. All of that may be secondary and, and, and maybe part of your past. But you're, you're going to have to have that same sense of a fulfilling life is, is, is how I give back. How, what's, what is my legacy? And it, your legacy doesn't have to be, uh, you know, I, I cured cancer. 
kind right, of legacy. Right. And it's and it sure as hell isn't how much crap you bought, how many cars are in the garage. Right. Uh, and I, and I, you know, if you've got tons of money and you collect cars, great. Uh, but at some point, you only got one ass. Right. right? <laughs> so you got a 20,000 square foot house with bedrooms you haven't seen yet. And you got 20 cars in the garage. Right. And, and, and so what are you doing? Now you're like a kid with toy cars, except they're huge. Right. And, and what, where's the, where's the real satisfaction in that? Where's the, where's the real fulfillment? It's like, I, oh, I got to be a grown up boy and I can buy really expensive toys. Right. If you can't evolve beyond money, the, the real success of an entrepreneur is when he or she realizes that it's not about the money. It's not about how much you made. It's how, how great a place to work did you create? How many lives did you impact by giving them a good job and making them better at what we did? One of the things we did at 800 Dennis is we grew people. They would, we had employees that were with us 25 years. That they worked their entire adult life for us. And we had a, a little sticker on the door in the, uh, on, on one floor was the call center and another floor was all of the sales and customer service and finance and marketing. And there were stickers on people's doors that said, I started in the call center. And some of them were VPs. So, so my partner and I and, and all the executives, our satisfaction was giving these people the skills to have a better life and support their family and, and give us the reward of that by, by challenging them to be better. And when you, you realize, I created a business that had an impact. I had customers that benefited. I had the, the world that was a better place because I made people healthier. And I made it a, a, a career for people. Because most people, if you're a business leader, most people are looking for a job. They don't have the balls to start a business. Right. They want you to solve it. It's your responsibility to make that business successful so that they don't have to worry about it. My brother and I were just talking about this. It's like there's a certain amount of risk that we were at at certain points of the business that the executive team understood how, how close we were to falling off a cliff, but we didn't let it get all the way down to the rank and file. That's not healthy for them. Right. Because they're like, wait a minute, my job's at risk. The business is at risk. I, I, how am I going to do my job? Right. They don't have the. I, I have a, a tremendous capacity for risk and stress in business. Most people don't have that. Employees don't have that. And it's it's irresponsible to to make them feel that way. Right. Right. So I, you know, I feel like you could have wrote a book similar to my friend Hal Elrod, who wrote a book called The Miracle Morning about getting up early and having good habits and attacking your day. And you probably could have wrote the book that I wrote on lead generation. And you could have wrote, you know, a, a book on many things. Why boldness? What, why in this, you know, second, third, fourth chapter of your life where you do want to give back and you do want to teach and you want to do seminars? Why was boldness the thing that's like, of all my life experience, coaching experience, business experience, this is the thing that I want to teach and that I'm uniquely qualified to teach? Because I think it's a superpower. And the younger you learn it, the more profoundly fulfilling your life will be. And, you know, there are people who are really good at stuff. And they're like, we're going back to the naturals again. You know, Kobe's probably a crappy basketball coach. 
because he's, he's too much natural skill. Uh, you know, when he would, if he ever had lived and tried to do that. He, yeah, Magic he made, Johnson tried to coach the Lakers, and he was god-awful. Yeah, I mean, it, because he, he couldn't tell somebody who was struggling how to get through that because he didn't have that struggle. My struggle was with my shyness and my underconfidence that I had to figure out how to defeat in order to have a satisfying life, in order to have satisfying relationships with women, in order to have success in business, uh, in order to have fun and not miss stuff and not miss opportunities, and then also be where I ought to be. And that's a big point is, is at a certain point, in your life, you need, you need to realize there's stuff you ought to be doing, not just what you want to do, not what's for fun, but where are you for the people who need you, whether it's your employees or the people you're coaching or, or your family or your close friends? Are you doing what you ought to be doing? That's, that's where the real satisfaction comes. And the only way you're going to do that is if you've built your boldness muscle enough to step up and to speak up and to not miss opportunities. And I can teach it because I had to teach myself because a lot of people go boldness. You can't teach it. You're either born with it or you're not. And I say, no, what do you think? And when I tell people how shy I was, they laugh and they say, it's, I don't believe it. I've seen you on stage with 5,000 people. I've seen you wade into a room and people are drawn to you. Yeah, I would never have guessed that you were shy as yeah. a young, as a young. No, <laughs> I was painfully shy, and because I worked my way out of it, I can teach it, and I feel, in, in part, it's my responsibility to teach it because it's what I really understand. But I also understand the difference it made in my life when I did it, the 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 impact that I could have, and that's what my life is about now. Is I want to have impact in a way that I, I'm capable of doing it. And also that I feel like would impact thousands or millions of people. I really want to create a movement of boldness because it takes boldness to say, I can solve the problem with plastic in the ocean. I can, I can solve the problem of desalinization. I can solve the, you know, I, I, get, I get solutions for climate change that, that we can adapt buildings. If we just build them a certain way and all of a sudden it's half the air conditioning or whatever. Uh, we need people crazy enough to think they can do it. Right. Because that means somebody's going to do it. It's only the crazy people that accomplish stuff, that, that people go, that's crazy, that'll never happen. And right. they go, I think, it, I think I could make it happen. Yeah. And they, they fail upwards to achieve it. I, I mean, I drive an electric car that drives itself that 10 years ago people would have said, you're crazy. I mean, that's pretty bold. Yeah. Uh, that that such a that somebody said no no this is where the way cars are going, and it's going to drive this. There's, there's no reason. Uh, when I drove up here, my Honda has uh, has pretty much the best cruise control ever. I spent most of the hour not touching the gas or the brakes. Right, it just followed the person in front of me, all the way from a complete stop in this LA traffic right to seventy miles an hour. Yeah, it's and, crazy, right? Yeah, and it's uh, this isn't this isn't. I don't even have to buy a Tesla to get this. Yeah. Now my the Honda is smart enough to do it. And if I try to change lanes without turning the blinker on, it goes right back in that lane. It just put, tugs the wheel back and puts me back in. And this is, this is 
us. You know, this is the world that we're living because somebody said this is possible. Yeah. Not only is it possible, it can be widespread. It's not like a miracle singularity achievement. This can be the new standard. It's funny. I remember reading something. There was either a lawsuit or a patent or a dispute or something about variable timing windshield wipers. Uh, you know, the Ford was the first one to put them on their cars, but they had stole it from whoever, Volkswagen, I don't know. But there, I remember this, reading this article, and one of the things it said in the article is, is when the variable control windshield wiper timer was designed that was going to be the pinnacle of automotive success. Like nothing else could possibly be created on the car once yeah. we had variable timing windshield wipers. Um, and I just think that's so funny because now cars literally drive themselves and it, it took bold people. Um, I, you, you said something that I really want to come back to. Um, it takes boldness to know where you ought to be. And I'll just get some free coaching from you because we're on my podcast. You know, I, I'm constantly struggling with as well. Do I continue down this path of being a top producing loan officer, but my heart's really in coaching? And does that mean I have to make a company change? And does that mean I have to be uncomfortable and hand off more of my business and more of my relationships to somebody who's going to focus on the loan? Oh, I'll just kind of get dragged back into the loan side. And, you know, I struggle with this. Where, where ought I be? And when I talk to other salespeople, they're like, well, I just never feel satisfied because when, when I'm with my family and I'm trying to be present with my family, I feel like I ought to be focusing on my business. And when I'm putting in a 9, 10, 12-hour day with my business, I feel guilty and I feel like I ought to be with my family. So whether it's in that moment-to-moment, -moment, where ought I be at 8 o'clock tonight, you know, putting my kids to bed or doing a podcast or working on my mortgage business or working on myself or unwinding and smoking a cigar. So when we talk to that moment-to-moment that -moment, and then we talk about the grand things, well, ought I live in California or do I need to move to a more libertarian state like Idaho or should I be doing mortgages or should I be doing, um, you know, coaching? And I, I don't want to take away all the thunder of your book because I know from reading it there's some of that in there. But but how do people start to conceptualize in a moment-to-moment -moment or the big grand decisions? All right, I've, I've got a crossroads. I can go down this path or this path. Where where ought I be? Okay, so we, we get two questions that I want to answer one and then the other. The first is uh, I, when I'm with my kids, I feel like I should be working. When I'm working, I feel I should be work with my kids. The giant shift that you have to make is to define done for the day for yourself. And be wherever you are, be doing that. If, if, you've, if, if you're working, work, focus. You'll accomplish way more if you're not thinking about where else you could be or where else you ought to be. You ought to be there. And then when you're with your kids, you ought to be 100% there because you're done with that. And there's, there's so much power in it because there's no reason that, that they should overlap and, and diminish. But it's because we feel like we feel pulled by either one. If you decide, oh, I, I, I'm, I've been busting ass for three weeks straight I'm going to fuck off for a week. And I'm, I'm full on, unreachable, doing nothing. I'm hanging out with my kids. I'm going to do stupid stuff. I'm going to eat what the hell I want. I'm gonna, maybe I'll get some exercise. Maybe I won't. But don't try to reach me. And be in that space. And you know what? That's what the real recharge is. That's what it's for. So then you come out recharged and swinging. 
But what we do is we're, we're constantly beating ourselves up about where we are and where we should be. Now, now, where you ought to be, that's a bigger decision. Let, let, me, let me go on the day-to-day -day real quick, and then we'll go yeah. to the bigger decision. Because I do want to hit on that. But let, let's say define done. I love that. that that's got to be a clip on, on defining done. Because if you're, if you're in this tension of like when I'm at work, I feel like I should be with my family. When I'm with my family, I should feel like I should be working. I'm constantly looking over my shoulder at the phone. If you can define done, and if, let's say for me in the mortgage business, my definition of done is by the end of the day, my inbox has less than five emails that carry over to the next day, and I made 10 sales calls that built or deepened a sales relationship, and I moved two mortgage files to the next step, you know, submitted to approved, approved to clear to close, whatever, and like in my mind, I got my little checklist of I'm done for the day. All the other bullshit's okay. Now it's all right to turn off my phone and go do five quality hours with my family, and then when I'm with my family, done is like I put my phone on airplane mode so I could be present. And, you know, I built a Lego set with my kid. And after that, I know my kind of my, my patience is gone after one Lego set. I'm okay admitting that, that that's my that's my bandwidth for hanging with out. With my, yeah, yeah my, <laughs> my bandwidth for hanging out with my six-year-old is one Lego set, yeah, you know, age sure. eight to ten. Because after that, like my but patience you know, is just gone. He benefits from 100% of your attention during that time. It is not amount of time. It is the quality of focus. That's, that's what every child benefits from most with a parent. They don't need infinite amount of time. And actually, it basically makes them feel like they're the center of the, of the universe, which is a really bad message. It's like, dad's going to do some other stuff right now. I gave you 100% of me, and that's what I'm always going to do when I'm with you. But now I'm going to do some other stuff to do it with mom i'm gonna do it i'm gonna read some books i'm gonna i'm gonna do these things for myself maybe to make myself better Man. and they, i they, i don't owe you these people people and it's these they're not even helicopter parents they're lawnmower parents they're like they gotta plow they gotta cut the grass and let the kid have not even experience a blade of grass that's too high it's how does that grow a, a successful adult no chance yeah no, I, I, my brother and I grew up, our parents worked. I mean, forget latchkey kids. I mean, I can barely remember having a babysitter. I think by the time we were nine, they stopped giving us babysitters. Uh, we were on our own and we'd go out and play till it got dark and we came back in. And, you know, and maybe one of the parents would be home from work by then. And what we did is we had to figure out how to function in the world. We had to figure out how to function with all of these kids in the neighborhood who are all growing into adults in their own way. If, if you shelter every, everything from them and make them say, my life is devoted to you, then you're sending them the wrong message. A really good friend of mine, he was an old friend of mine. He, he was actually married to my mom's best friend. He, he, came to this conclusion in his 30s, and he had three kids, and he said, my life is actually about Joan, my wife. My kids, I'm, I have a responsibility to raise my kids and provide for them and send them off into the world with as with many tools as possible. But I'm going to be with Joan till my dying day. My life is about, my key relationship life is her. And that's how he behaved. And, you know, they lived together in their 80s. And they were just this amazing couple together. Because he didn't 
tell the kids that they were more important than his marriage. The kids understood that mom and their relationship was primary to each other and that they were going to do plenty for the kids. You know, as you're saying all this, I'm thinking, I I really love this quote, not, not the amount of time, it's the quality of the focus. And, you know, we can learn so much lessons from little kids. And my six-year-old, I realize if we're playing or doing something and I'm kind of keeping an eye on my phone out of the, uh, oh, that's planes going by. See, this is more proof that we film in our garage because you can always hear planes going over the five freeway. Um, so uh, so if, if, if we're doing something and I'm kind of looking over my shoulder at my phone or my computer, I'm not giving them pure focus, uh, he's kind of an ass when I have to leave that task because, you know, he's hungry for more attention. I didn't give him the quality of focus, but you can't look at your phone or do anything else when you're throwing a baseball. So just recently we've gotten in the habit of throwing the ball back and forth in the backyard. And when I'm fully engaged and he has that quality of focus where it's me, him, the ball and a mitt, and that's it. I can say at the, at the end of five minutes or 10 minutes or however we're throwing the ball, all right, buddy, two more throws, and then I got to go back in and go back to work. And he's totally at peace with it. Yeah. He's like, okay, cool, two more throws, one to you, one to me. Dad's got to go back to work. And I'm just realizing now as you're saying this, it's because in that moment, even though it's only maybe a, a five-minute break when I'm working at home, he comes and he's like, hey, Dad, can you throw the ball in the backyard? And I, and I run out there and we throw it. It's, it's all about him. And it's 100% focus. Yeah, and, and he's so much more accepting yeah. of 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 ending that activity with five minutes of quality focus than if I spend two hours with them watching a movie or playing Legos or whatever, but I'm kind of answering some stuff over my phone and I'm keeping, you know, keeping an eye on my text message. He knows that I'm not there for him at that moment. So it's amazing what you can learn from a six year old and a 60 year old. So yeah, (laughs) I'm just joking. I have no idea how you are, how old you are. You're close. I'm close. 52. 68. 68. Oh, fuck. You're, you're killing it, man. You're killing it. You look great. Um, all right. So that's kind of the day-to-day. I think we got some like good coaching from you there on, on knowing what done is and then whether you're focusing on work or focusing on your kids or your spouse or whatever, not the amount of time but the quality of the focus. Now let's talk about the biggies, right? The big paths diverge. Where am I going to live? What career am I going to focus on? What opportunity am I going to take at work? Where, where do we allow boldness to, to be present but not hubris? Yeah. And not and not be at least calculated risk, okay? Where you you where you protect your downside. You're a dad. You're a, a husband. You have to protect your downside when you take risks. But you have to look at what scares you and ask yourself: Am I scared of that because I'm afraid of failing? Am I scared of that because I really want it and I'm afraid of failing, which is different than just afraid of failing? Because you really want it and afraid to fail is much more painful. But a lot of people, the big mistake they make is they don't try it because they could fail at it and it would, it would hurt too much. Whereas a bold person says, I know I want it and I know there's risk that I won't get there. I'm going to try the fifth business. And I, I know it's the bold move and it's a little crazy and I've already done it, but I want to take one more swing. And even though I'm broke, I'll sleep better. Because this is what bold people figure out is that trying and failing feels better than not trying. Trying and succeeding feels great. Obviously, it's wonderful. 
but tr- not trying is what gnaws at you. Say that again for the people in the back. Trying and failing. Trying and failing feels better than not trying. Even if you failed, at least you tried. If you walked across the room and asked that girl out who was gorgeous and everybody else was afraid to talk to her and she stiff-armed you, you still feel better than standing over in the corner of the room saying, I, I shouldn't talk to her because she's too good-looking. She's not interested in me. I'm just, she's going to just, she's not. The bold person says, I'm going to go find out if she's got a boyfriend. And finds out. And she says, yeah, I, I'm, I'm engaged. I just don't have the ring on right now. The bold guy feels fine because he made the run-up. And yeah. that's, that's a metaphor for everything. Look at what's, what could go wrong. How bad could it be? Again, protect your downside risk. And that, there's no downside risk. Yeah. Tried and failed. If she's sitting with maybe three bikers that look like they've spent, you know, a dozen years in penitentiary, maybe. Downside maybe risk is your... enormous. <laughs> right, at that right, point. right. Yeah. Do you mind if I dance with your date? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Straight out of Animal House. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so. As you, as you get through life, you say, what should I be doing now? What is, and, and you have to have a vision for who you can become, and it has to be a stretch. It has to be a challenge that is potentially you couldn't make it in order to feel like, you know, we're alive, but we don't know how long we're going to be alive. I, I say, you know, we're in the game of life, but we don't know how long the coach is going to let us play. So let's play full out. Because literally, the, the coach could bench you like that. You don't know. We all feel like we're just, I'm just going to keep going. It's like, right. you know, your friends are dropping like flies. Have you noticed that? Uh, it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, but I'm fine. I'm fine. I can still smoke cigars. I can do all sorts of stupid stuff. And, and, and you know, drive fast cars and without my seatbelt on and stuff like that. That's other people that are going to die. Right. You know, uh, but the reality is anything could happen. If, if you live to my age, we've had, I've lost friends. In an instant, over crazy stuff, asleep yeah. at the wheel, gone the gone in that moment. Yeah, and we all think we got way more time on the clock. Oh, I'm 60. I'm going to live to at least 80. Well, guess what? You'll be 75 before you know it. Right. And the 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 clock goes faster in, for some insane reason. Right, right. <laughs> we have more of a point of reference, right? It's like, yeah, well, that's it. It's yeah. like my six-year-old, for him, summer, three months, that's a big chunk of his life. Oh, yeah, because percentage-wise, it's an enormous part of his life. It's like, how the I, we're both looking at each other going, how could it be that the year's half over? Oh, right totally. Now? No, it's like, I feel like I'm paying taxes by doing my taxes every three months, and I'm doing <laughs> once a year. I was like, oh, how's going to be doing taxes? Didn't they like, just yeah. buy Christmas gifts? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it, it's a constant examination of am I where I ought to be and am I going where I ought to be going and Mm -hmm. that and embedded in that is there's no such thing as making the right decision there's making the most informed decision you can and then living with whatever happens and that's what bold people also do is they say whatever happens I'm gonna roll with it it could, I could have something really bad happen to me on stage. I'm going to roll with it because I'm not going to label it as bad. I'm going to label it as my next step up, my next big chunk of information. 
So are you saying bold people don't have regrets? I think they don't. I think they, I, I think they minimize them. They reach a point in their life where they've minimized them. They still regret stuff they didn't try because they say, I've had it happen to me where I, I said, I really want to talk to that person. And I'll go over, really famous or successful person. I'll go over and I'll, I'll have a conversation with them. And it goes so well that I punch out. It's like, I, I, I had such a, it's like, and as I walk away, I went, they weren't telling me to get lost. They weren't acting like I was done. I was like, I was taking the prize and running. Whereas I could have just stayed there and had another 10 minute conversation with them. And so I, you know, and, but it's not a regret. It's a lesson. Cause you go, ah, that's what I did. I, I, I punched out too early. It wasn't necessary. And I did that. So you just turn it into, you know, acting more intelligently the next time. Yeah. Failure is just information. Success. Most, a lot of times you got lucky. Yeah. You may have worked hard, but a lot of things fell into place. Failure, nothing but information. And when you just say, I'm, I'm looking for information, so I got to try this. I got I to run this up and see how it goes. You know, it's funny. You mentioned talking to the famous person. I've got a buddy who paid, you know, of one of these, like, socialite groups to go to Necker, ne Nectar Island? Necker Island? Necker. Necker yeah. Island. Uh, and got to meet uh, Richard Branson and whatnot. And... He said, it's interesting because you go there, you're paying for the trip, you're hanging out on his private island. He knows that only the people that can afford to be there are worth him getting to know. So it's like, it's kind of your shot to sit down and break bread with one of the most famous people in the world. And even in that moment, people that pay big dollars to go there, oh, hi, sir, nice to meet you, da, 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 and they kind of wander off. And he walked up and he's like, hey, I hear you play chess. And he's like, yeah, he's like, I bet you can't beat me five games in a row. And they played you know, five hours of chest and got to become friends. And now they're, they're working on things together. And I'm like, how bold is this guy where even the other people that had paid to come to the Island were scared to even talk to the man. And he's like, Hey, I'll, I'll fuck you up in five games of chess. Like, and yeah. it, it was funny. And now, you know, the, it, it favors the bold and now they're, now they're buddies and now they're talking about business development stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, man, what, what a lost opportunity by the other 19 guys who weren't bold. Yeah. You were right at the plate and you'd never even picked up the bat. Yeah. Oh, God. That's such a such a painful looking analogy. And that's, in my and head. that's it, 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 think about that. Mind those experiences and say what what was I telling myself? What was my message of unworthiness that I embraced? Instead of saying, "What the fuck? Why not?" You know, it's like Simon Sinek has this great book. Start with why. My recommendation: start with why not. Why not go talk to Richard? What's the worst that could happen? He could say, you know, uh, I don't really want to talk about that. Or I'm busy right now. Or I'm going to go talk to him. I got to go. I mean, I've, I've met Richard. I've played chess with Richard. So I beat him. Beat him. There you go. First game. Beat him. See, he's not that good. Yeah. <laughs> or you're exceptionally good. And he good, called so. me a really bad name. <laughs> and and, and uh, immediately set the chessboard up to play again. Nice. And, and we talked for the next five days about politics. Because he's a massive political, you know, he's he's on the on the world stage. He right. thinks about impact of everything. And we just had great conversations. But I know how to talk to him like a regular human being. Right. I didn't say, oh, I shouldn't be talking to Richard. Right. Yeah, this is human. Yeah. And he's actually, he's, and of course, think about it. He's probably one of the five people I admire most in the world. Right. 
for who he is, for what he's accomplished. Uh, the list goes on. He's a great family man. He's playful. He's adventurous. He windsurfs. You know, he does crazy stuff. He's done amazing marketing events. I mean, I admire him, in him for everything. And I could be totally intimidated by that, or I could say, let's play. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, because no two people are exactly alike, but no two people are completely dissimilar. So I'm guessing, like, with any political conversation, maybe you guys had some common ground, maybe you guys had some contentious conversations. What is that like, talking politics with somebody who's on the world stage, who you look up to, that you probably agree with some things and disagree with some things. What are some tips, especially in this environment? You know, we're we're filming this in the summer of 2022. There's still a Trump hangover. People hate Biden. People hate this. Roe versus Wade just got overturned. What's a, what's a bold way to talk about politics and contentious issues without coming across as an ass? I just say, because I have tons of people who are at polar opposite to me. I'll just say... I, I'm really interested in why you think that way. Because I have never talked anybody into voting in a different way. With my amazing polemic skills, okay? <laughs> I have had zero success. But I want to understand why they think that way. They think that most political behavior is almost genetic in people is that, that we are genetically biased to be more conservative or totally more liberal. Totally believe that. 100% believe yeah. that. And, and so it comes through that filter, and now we have news organizations that whatever your confirmation bias is, they'll feed it to you, and you right. just go to it. Right. And Facebook will do the same thing. Right. So I, I want to know why they think that way. I, and because I don't need to judge them as wrong. And if they want to make me wrong, if they want to call me one of their names, I'm going to say, I'm sorry, are you eight? You know, like, why are you so out of ideas or justification for how you think that you have to just call me a name? That's kind of sad. Don't right. you, don't you, aren't you a little, little bit embarrassed about right. that? You know, to call me a libtard, you know? Uh, so Maybe. I mean, it's a pretty catchy name. I mean, well, whoever, whoever thought of it was pretty witty. But. Right, right. <laughs> Except it's, you're eight years old yeah, when, yeah. You're, when, you're, when you're using it. And, and when you use it online, you feel so empowered. You right, know, right, when you right. use it on Facebook and, and stuff. Uh, and, you know, and I, they, what happens is I put them in a position where they have to ask me why I think the way I do. And I, and because they'll say to me, well, you know, these people are, it's so stupid. It's so interesting. Like, how the hell can anybody think that way? And I'll say, do you think I'm stupid? Do I, do I seem uninformed? Do I seem unintelligent to you? Guess what? I totally disagree with you. I'd be interested in discussing why or not, but you're not going to be able to dismiss me because I'll go toe to toe with you on facts and and figures and, and statistics and, and all of that and stuff. life experience and, and all of that stuff. Okay. Because, and this is the two, the things that, that people get so hung up on is the things that are totally unknowable, religion and politics. They are beliefs. You believe certain things. You believe there's a God. You believe Jesus is the son of God. You right. believe Buddha is, is you know, uh, an enlightened entity. Whatever uh, you believe that the conservative party always has the right answers. Those are beliefs. They're not facts. So give yourself 
a little room to be wrong right. or to be biased or, or to say, I can't actually predict the future. I love it when people, you know, I can remember when, when uh, George W. was president and they, people said, like, this is it. it, it he's been reelected. It's, it's the end of the world. It just wasn't. Right. And I just, I, I, you live long enough and you say, actually, we've had really good presidents and really bad presidents, and it's really hard for a president to destroy America. Right. They can right. take a pretty good swing at it, and they can nearly bankrupt us, but America finds its way. We, you know, you can go back. We've had a lot of presidents. There's been some staggering shitheads right. along the way. Uh, and, and, and some, and then there's been this Lincoln's and Jefferson's and FDR's and, and along the way that have, have just brilliant in, in facing the challenges of that job. And America goes on. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why virtually every president, I think, except for maybe Jimmy Carter, I think every single president, their popularity goes up the longer they're out of office because people are out of the religious um, zealotry that goes along with my guy or not my guy. Yeah. And they're like, right. eh, you know, he wasn't such a bad guy. He didn't do so much wrong. You know, he did some things right. One of my favorite questions to, to ask people is like, hey, tell me about a president you voted for and like four or five things you didn't like that he did. I've, I voted for Bush twice. Um, well, maybe I started voting Libertarian his second time around. Anyway, uh, I switched to Libertarian. You said you wanted to throw your vote away. Yeah, exactly. See, yeah. I hate when people say that. See, we <laughs> can get in a fight about that. Um, so, I, yes, I wanted to make a statement. Because be you believe that it made a difference. I do. That was a belief. Totally, totally. Yeah. Um, but I can point out five things that I dislike he did, you know, and, yeah. and my, my liberal friends that are conscientious and they're, they're, they're intelligent and they're well-read, they can point out five things they disagreed with what Bush did, you know? And I'm like, if you can't, if you can't reflect and be like, hey, this is kind of what I did right, this is kind of what I did wrong, this is kind of the things that the people I believe in did right, did wrong, then, then you're, not, you're not really coming to the argument or the conversation with intellectual honesty, in my opinion. No, because you have to be absolutely right about something you can't be absolutely right about. Right. <laughs> which is why we're stuck with ev evangelicals. They, it, it has to be that is the Bible is the facts from God. Right. Which is, and I always say, which version? So, which so is a problem for th them to answer. This is an interesting a balance, right? Because yeah. in one point you're like, hey, you should be bold, right? Yeah. You should be bold. And I think boldness might lead to a hubris in your beliefs where you're like, well, well, you know, I, I, I did what he told me. Like it's on the cover of the book, right? Super bold. Fred told me to just tell people they're wrong and I'm right. And I boldly believe in my beliefs. Right. But the re super bold has an element in it of humility, true boldness, because you know, two things I could be better and I could be wrong. That's, that takes real boldness. That's because as, as a person, you're not afraid to be wrong. You know who's afraid to be wrong? A narcissist. And weak people, right? Right. A narcissist is, is, has to be right all the time because they're so incredibly insecure. A bold person's not insecure, and they're so secure and so confident, they could be absolutely wrong and just go, holy crap. I, I was totally wrong about this. I thought Biden was going to be the, the cure for Trump. And, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty much wrong on, uh, you know, on nine out of 12 things that I believed. Uh, and be fine with it and say, and yeah, and I voted for him. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know what to do about it. Uh, but I still wouldn't vote for Trump if he, if right. he ran again. Right. Because right? I don't think that's the answer is to vote for a 
you know, a malignant narcissist. So, but, but that's just, I never met Trump. Well, I did meet Trump. And he was a douche when I met him. Right. But not hard to believe. No, no. Uh, but, you know, and but even he even almost inadvertently did some really clever things. Right. But he kept firing good advisors who could tell him how to do better things. Yeah. Uh, and he and he has had the thinnest skin of like anybody alive. Right. Uh, which is not leadership. You right. know, <laughs> leadership is uh, I could be wrong. And help me understand how to do this better. Yeah. I, I think, I hope, I hope we're getting to a point in American politics where the populace is hungry for somebody that's bold enough to say, I don't know, I was wrong, our party was wrong, um, let me do some more research on that. Like, can you imagine the 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 scratch on the record if in a debate instead of people trying to get in their 30 second talking point, they're like, you know, moderator, that's a really good question. And I'm not going to pretend like I have the answer on all of that. But what I can tell you is I'm going to go back and do some more research on that. And if I'm elected president, I'll put the best person in the world in charge of the department of agriculture instead of my brother-in-law. I, I, I think that person would win the election immediately because yeah. yeah. we're so hungry for just some, some Well, imagine if like, let's say Newsom is debate, he's running for president and he, he's in a debate and, and, and his opponent says, you got a staggering homeless problem in California. And he cops to it. He goes, oh, it's, it's disastrous. It's almost ruined San Francisco. It's a huge problem in California. We put so much energy into solving it and we try some things and they don't work. And we're going to keep trying things till we solve it. And, it mo and, it's, and we tried throwing money and money didn't solve it. We tried, uh, you know, not enforcing laws and that didn't help. So we're going to try something else. We're going to keep yeah. trying because it's a huge problem because it's a great place to be homeless in California. The right. weather's really good. Yeah. And the rents are too high. So it's pretty easy to be homeless. You can be a regular person and be homeless in two months in yeah. California. I'd like to fix the cost of housing in California too. Yeah. Imagine saying that. And, and what's your opponent going to say? Like, uh, yo, yo, you, you, you were bad. Right. Like, right. Good retort. You and, know? And, but sadly, you and I both know what's going to actually happen. No. Is he's going to come with some bullshit stat to sugarcoat something yeah. because they won't be bold. And what, neither of them is going to, let's say it's DeSantis and him. Neither right. of them are going to cop to anything anything that went wrong oh, and and that they that you know that that politics is tacking left and tacking right there's no pathway up and right. that no no one party has all the answers we are in the world of you my party has all the answers and your party's totally wrong totally uh, that that's and that exactly can't be right. how could that possibly be right right uh, who's totally right about anything no one. Elon Musk isn't totally right about anything, and he's a lot smarter than everybody else. Right, right. He has all the money. Yeah. And he's pretty freaking smart, and he still gets stuff wrong on Twitter probably every other day. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and he was two weeks from bankruptcy. Right, 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 right. Um, I want to go back to your book because I think it's excellent. And one of the things that I like about your book is it's not just esoteric and here's some here's some thoughts and here's some stories of grandeur and boldness. I like that you actually have tactical things. Hey, you want to be more bold? Do this thing. 
and I don't want to completely ruin the book because everybody should go buy it, but give me two or three things that you're really proud of, like chapter seven where I tell people to do this or, or this exercise. What are some of the exercises that you wrote about in the book about becoming bold that really stand out to you that are some of your favorite to do? Or maybe you guys did them at the seminar. You well, we did a bunch of the things at the workshop. So the baseline thing that I tell people, they say, what if, if I'm too cheap to buy the book, what should I do? I say, <laughs> I say fine, talk to a stranger every day compliment a stranger every day. I said, you'll get to feel good by making somebody else feel good about themselves. And you will start to build your boldness muscle. You will create that positive feedback loop and you realize people are receptive to being talked to. But we, you know, uh, one of the things that I, I had my people do in the workshop is like during the lunch, they had to go out and compliment some people, but they also, they had if they were feeling bolder, they had other stuff. So one of them actually panhandled uh, for she, she, but she did it in a creative way. And she had a wing person. They all went out with a wing person. And she's had a sign that said, if you give me a dollar, she'll give me $10. And so people, and she, but she experienced what it was like to do that because they all had wigs on. So they all right. embraced the idea of wearing wigs and becoming slightly a different person. And she said people would walk around us in an arc and try not to make eye contact with us. And finally, this man and his son came up to us and he said, you're really going to do this? And she said, yeah, give me a dollar. And, he's, and so he gives her a dollar and the son says, I want to see you give her the $10. So she, her wing person pulls out the 10 and pays her. And now the, the man says, uh, are you going to give me my dollar back now? And, and, she was like, well, I don't know. And he said, if you give it back to me, I'll give it to my son. So she gave the dollar back. So she created this totally unique experience by being nutty enough to, to try panhandling in one form or other. Right. And feel what that felt like, that discomfort of, wow, people are really avoiding me. Like I have the plague, even though I, I don't look like a homeless person. I just have a kind of a silly wig on. Right. Um. Another guy was, uh, had a free hugs sign. And he said it was amazing how many people hugged him. Uh, and, he, and, and then he, he went into the other, th the other exercises uh, to go into like an ice cream shop and just yell at the top of your lungs, I love ice cream. And just because your brain is going, oh, I can't do this. I'm in a public place and people are going to look at me weird. So what? So what? Yeah, no one's going to shoot you for saying no, I no, love ice nobody, cream. nobody's going to beat you to death. You're never going to, you're not going to be barred from Ben and Jerry's for yelling "I love ice cream." Right. Uh, and other people are going to go, yeah, I kind of like ice cream too. I like it a lot. I yeah. like, probably like it that much. That's and why I'm in the line right, right now yeah, for so ice cream. I'm, that's right. Give me another scoop. Right. Um, he he walks into Victoria's Secret and yells, "I love thongs." <laughs> I mean. He was he was out of control. This guy he was he was ready to just embrace the whole idea, um, and so I'm not saying that's what you do. I'm saying start by talking to strangers. A, 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 an exercise I always recommend is if you see a sign that says employees only, go in. Nothing bad will happen. You told me this last time, and I'm so terrified to do it. I know that's the whole. That's why you do it is because why are we so terrified? It's just a sign. There's no law against it. There's no law against going in the ladies' room if you're a man or if go in the men's room if you're a woman. Right, right. There's, there's no law against it. 
that's just a sign. And when and you go, I can't be in here. I can't be in here. And and then nothing bad happens. Or if you're, you know, I've I've used the ladies' room more than once in weird situations where somehow the men's room is destroyed or whatever, locked yeah. or or the guys in there having the bowel movement of the century, right? He's just <laughs> right, like, right. won't unlock the door. So I and the ladies' room's empty, and I'll go in, and I'll come out, and there's a, a, a woman waiting. Yeah, and she looks at me like, like whatever. Yeah, why do I have to take that on? I'm going to try the employees one. And, you know, part of the year we live in Vegas, part of the year we live down here in L.A. I'm going to try it in Vegas at a casino. And I end up, if I end up in oh, jail, come on. No, if I end up no. in jail, I'm going to I'm going to call you to bail me out. <laughs> be like, this guy tried to walk into the chip counting room. And so I, I, I will be your first person to create like an international scene walking into the employees. But th only. That's the thing is their security is going to come and they're just going to walk you out. Right, they're not going to beat you to death. They're not going to shoot you. They're not going to arrest you. Right, because they don't know. Maybe I pay. Maybe I play a thousand dollars a roll on roulette. Right, and you're drunk. Yeah. like most people. Right, 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 right. So they're they're used to dealing with that. So you you wandered in, and I thought it was the men's room. It says employees only. Yeah. Well, I'm an employee, just not here. You know. Uh, I, I have a family member who hates shopping, despises it, will not go to the store, will not buy his own jeans. His wife buys his jeans. He loves being bold and going to places where he knows he'll never be able to afford anything. So be like, you know, go go to the Lamborghini dealership and be like, yeah. I, I can mean, I do it? Can I, I, I test drive? Can I do a test drive? And they're like, well, we don't really test drive Lamborghinis. He's like, well, I should, right? And and he before I pay this before much, I, I should quarter of a million dollars. They're yeah. like, no, that's not really how it works. But he doesn't care. He's he. It, it's so funny. The same guy. I don't think he's fearful of it. But the same guy that wouldn't be caught dead in Walmart buying a pair of, you know, athletic shorts will gladly walk into uh, the highest end jewelry store in Beverly Hills and be like, yeah, I, I need to try on every one of these watches because I'm thinking about spending 50 grand on a Rolex today. Yeah. And, um, and and he's very bold. You know, it, it doesn't bother well, him. Well, be, because we all have bold sectors that we function in and, and unbold sectors that inhibit us. And you have to look at, where am I unbold where it matters in my life? Am I, if, am I not bold enough to give good feedback when it's appropriate? Um, am I not bold enough to tell people what I expect from them who work for me or to tell my spouse what I expect in the marriage and, and to invite feedback from somebody? And I, I tell people this too. Imagine how much better your life would be you could take criticism because it's really hard to do because it says we take it as a self-definition. I am bad. I am this rather than it's my behavior that I can change. You know, a buddy of mine has this as the last chapter in one of his books. He wrote a, a self-help personal development book. And the last chapter is the email that will change your life. And he talks about being bold and emailing 50 people that you are very close to or used to be close to, ex-girlfriends, ex-wife, current boss, previous boss, employees, you know, and just saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm doing this thing. I'm doing this exercise. I'd really like some honest feedback about what you think I do well, what I think I do poorly, where are some of my blind spots, where's a place where I offended you or wronged you that maybe I don't even know about. And he goes, I can always tell when people get to the end of the book and they're bold enough to do it because 100% of the time they will email me and my assistant will be like, hey, we got another email about the life-changing email. Yeah. And, and he'll read them and he's like, they're just, 
they're so eye-opening of, you know, I, I emailed an ex-girlfriend from 10 years ago where things ended badly and did a little mea culpa and her feedback about some of my blind spots were were eye-opening. You know, it, it made me laugh. It made me cry. It made me reflect who I am as a man. And um, and it's 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 really powerful to ask people for feedback if if you have thick enough skin and you're bold enough to take it. Well, and you you're it's you're gonna cringe. It doesn't take confidence to do it. It takes boldness. You may not feel confident at all about asking people that. You may feel terribly frightened of that, but you're bold enough to go send. And what happens is when you're bold enough, the results come and then you get more confident. Boldness builds confidence because boldness is action. Confidence is how you feel. Boldness is action. Confidence is how you feel. Can you, can you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah. I, I mean, there are situations where you feel confident and you don't do anything at all. No, I'm completely confident. Well, why don't you go meet Richard Branson? No, I'm, I'm completely confident about meeting people. Well, so, so, so go talk to him. I don't need to. Right. So, okay. So you, you can't act. Whereas you could be standing there saying, Oh my gosh, he's like the most successful guy I've ever met in my life. He makes a hundred times more than I make or a thousand times more than I make. And uh, you know, but I really just want to tell him how much I admire him. So as much as I'm in a flop sweat, I'm going to walk over and I'm going to tell him how much I admire him. And that's, it's just, uh, I appreciate being able to observe his life and learn from it. That's the bold move. You're not confident, but you go do it anyway. And you walk away with that and you are more confident because you said, wow, Richard just said, I really appreciate you telling me that. You know, I, if one of my goals is to, to influence people. I don't write this many books about my life to not inspire people. So right. I'm, it's great that you're inspired. And you walk away fuller. Your feeling about yourself has changed. The bold action has built your confidence. People have it backwards. They think they have to be confident enough to be bold. No, you just have to be bold enough. You could be uncomfortable. You could be unconfident underconfident and just act anyway why not act so if somebody's in that spot and and maybe we can end on this thought if somebody's in that spot and they're like i know i've got to be bold i've got to have the tough conversation with my boss i've got to stand up to my boss i've got to leave my boss i've got to change my career i've got to i've got to have this conversation with my wife because it's going the wrong direction i've got to I've got to lean into my marriage and be more bold about it. Like if, if somebody's trying to make that next big decision where they know they've got to exhibit some boldness, what are, th what are some steps for them, some thoughts? How do they get in touch with you for coaching to be bold? <laughs> well, they go to fredjoyle.com. You have to read the book because the book is going to teach you how to build that boldness muscle and also how to prepare yourself in a systematic way to take that action, to have this 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 four steps that you're going to follow. You're going to prepare. You're going to relax yourself. You're going to have an insight that influences the moment, and you can control the dosage of the experience. Now, the last step is to do something bold every day because that's what builds your boldness muscle, and that's when your brain says, I guess I'm bold. If we're going to do this shit every day, you know, instead of missing opportunities, I'm the one who seizes opportunities. The brain changes your self-definition by what you do every day. But you need to understand, 
how to prepare yourself, how to relax. What's the insight that's appropriate for this moment? What's really true? Does that person really opinion really matter to me? What's the downside? What's the big downside if I don't speak up, if I don't step up? What do I lose? How much will I regret? And then can I handle the intensity of this? Because I, I mean, I had people so shy in my workshop that they, they couldn't speak out loud on stage. And other people, it's like they were getting addicted to the stage. By the fourth time up, it's like, I can't wait to get back up again. Everybody's at a different place. And everybody in different situations is at a different place. Start where you are. Oh, that start where you are. All right, a couple of rapid-fire questions for you to close this out. Um, we're filming this, you know, dead center of the year of 2022. What's in focus for you, or what are you looking forward to going into the second half of the year? I know you just pulled off your first workshop, major success. Um, what's next for you, or what's, what's in focus that you're working on? Uh, I, I want to make the workshop twice as good this year, which means i got to do at least three more. Uh, and, and then schedule them. I want to do at least one uh, uh, almost every month. I want to do at least 10 workshops next year. I want to figure out how I could do it with a bigger audience. Because right now, 25, 26 people seems right. I want to see, I got to experiment. And that's the risk, is 50 too many people to make everybody feel attended to. Yeah, because people can hide in a crowd and not yes, be bold. Yes, or they're going to feel like, oh, I, I, he, he didn't really give me the attention like he gave her. Or, or the, the guest speaker focused on these five people instead of me. Uh, and and it's, it's going to be on them because they didn't step up. But that doesn't matter because at the end of the workshop, I'll say, you know, you gave the workshop before review, but you never stepped up. I said, who's, I told you at the beginning. Be the first one up here. That's, that's how you're going to get up here on stage. When I say, somebody come up, come up. If you don't even move. And hey, I did it in the workshop five, six times easily. I said, all right, somebody come up. Nobody would move. And I thought, really? Really? What, what, what is the workshop? <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, and, and, and finally, somebody would move. And what happened is the person who, who got up the last time, eventually they're, they're like, I've got to go, no, hang on, Thomas, hang on. Right, right. Somebody else get up. Take a breather. Yeah. Uh, because they, and they'd watch him and they'd go like, God, why is he doing this? Why does he just jump right up like that? Why am I still hesitating? That's the question. Love it. Why, do you wanna, why don't you want to stop that? So, you know, go to fredjoyle.com, buy the book. It's on Amazon. It's a buck on Kindle right now. Nice. It's the audible is like seven bucks. I'm not trying to get rich on the books. I want them in people's hands. I want people to profoundly change their lives, transform them as fast as possible. And there's, and you could buy the hardcover. Awesome. And you can, you can book a half an hour discussion with me to see if I'm good for coming to do a keynote for your business, or you want personal coaching for me because you, you can't get out of your house. I'll get you it. out of your house. Yeah, yeah, and, and walking into employee uh, break rooms and, and talking yeah, yeah. to strangers. Yeah, you'll be doing, you know, six months from now, you'll, people won't recognize you. But it's always important. I always remind people, you're not going to become somebody else. You're not going right. to become me. You're going to become the full you. You're going to bring the full you to the world that you've been resisting. You've been depriving the world of the full you because you're hesitating. Stop. 
doing that. We deserve the full you. I love it. I asked you the last question on, on the last question we asked you the last time you were on was favorite movie. And I can't remember what it is. I think Dead Poets Society. Dead Poets Society. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So anybody who's interested in that explanation is going to have to go back. So we'll ask a follow-up question. Favorite television show of all time and why? Wow. Uh, What's it called? What was it? I, you know, it's. Six Feet Under. Oh, a show I've never seen, so I have no commentary on that. Tell me why that's your favorite show. Because it constantly dealt with death in an incredibly interesting way, and it ended perfectly after, like, six seasons. And it, and it was so insightful and, and so rich in, in the most difficult part of people's lives because every episode began with somebody dying, usually in a weird way. And then this was a funeral home that had to deal with the family and also deal with their relationships. And, uh, but it's so hard to end a series. Well, I mean, I mean, look, I would have said the Sopranos, except I hated the way it ended. I think I'm the only one that loves the ending of the Sopranos. Well, and I I hate it less now. I, I don't mind the ambiguity of it anywhere near as much now. But in the moment, it was like, oh, I'll kill you. I'll kill you if I find you, you know, uh, for, for doing this, for ending this way. Uh, Game of Thrones. Horrible. I, you know, it could have ended so much better. Yeah. Uh, Lost. Horrible. Loved Lost could have easily strangled them. Yes. When I saw the final episode. You and me both. It's like ruined everything. Because, oh, oh, purgatory. Oh, how brilliant. Yeah. I just was just furious. I was furious, too. Did you, have you watched the Ozarks? Uh, the TV oh, yeah. Show oh, yeah. Okay, so I've never been able to change somebody's mind on who to vote for, but I did change somebody's mind on they went from hating the end of the series to loving it because they're like, ah, the ending was so shitty. I'm like, no, you don't understand. That's exactly how it had to end. It, yeah. it, this is a Greek tragedy where, where the person that you want to live doesn't live and the bad guys get more bad and they even pass on that, that evilness to their children. Yeah. And, and it's like, I, I thought the ending of that show was perfect. It's, it's too right. fresh it's for like, it to be my yes, favorite. They, they're good at getting away with it and they got away one more time. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the ending of that show. And then um, I will never, I, I, I'm going to cry just thinking about it. The ending of uh, The Wonder Years, which probably goes down as my favorite show. And they give the little, you know, monologue about what happened to all the family members. And when he's like, you know, my brother stepped up and took over the factory when dad died. And then when Winnie came home from France, you know, I was there to meet her with my wife and six month old baby. And I'm just like, I'm crying, you know, cause it doesn't end storybook. It ends like real life ends. Yeah. Parents die and, yeah. and high school relationships don't work out. And I just, that show like perfectly tracked my elementary and junior high school years. It was only on for like five or six seasons, but that was me from like fifth grade to 11th grade. So that show just like has a super special place in my heart. And if you've, if you've not rewatched the ending of that show, you should go watch it on YouTube because it'll make you tear up. I, I, um, I, 
don't remember it that distinctly. So I would love to see that again. It's great. Well, hey, Fred, thanks for making the, the journey all the way up here. I know you've got an In-N-Out burger to eat with your brother here who's been sitting so patiently and hasn't even raided my liquor cabinet. So he must be bored out of his mind. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate you coming up. We've got to find we've got to find a way to work together at some point in the future, whether it's my coaching group or a keynote I find for you for one of our mortgage conferences or something like I, I've got to get you introduced to some people because the topic is is so good and it's so relevant and the book is excellent and the tactical steps in the book are excellent so i appreciate you coming on man thank you so much i appreciate being on i love these conversations let's Thanks, do bro. it again for sure for sure you'll be my first uh tripeat guest I'll, I'll be the triple the trifecta there you go all right thanks man